Welcome to Supply Circles, stories from the innovators, disruptors, and improvers in supply chain management today, brought to you by AI Group. This is James Scotland. Before we start today's episode, I want to just share something with you. We often hear from people like me who speak conf- um, constantly at conferences the need to acknowledge traditional elders, past, present, and emerging. We recently heard of the passing of Una Pingle, a wonderful uh, elder from uh, the Lanapoi mob up in Northern Territory. I knew him quite well for a while, and I'm saddened by his loss. Next time you hear of people saying, let's acknowledge elders past, present, and emerging, remember these powerful, erudite, wonderful people who lead our traditional um, owners through difficult times. Vale, Inapingo. Hello, welcome to Supply Circles. My name is James Scotland, and in this podcast, we ask the question, how can we in Australia create supply circles that are resilient and sustainable at a time when we're implementing the challenges of the three Ds. You know them, digitalization to keep up with your peers and your industries, decarbonisation to meet your legal requirements and targets by 2050, and even in some states, 2045, and ongoing disruptions, which come in many shapes, not only in global pandemics, but also in industry disruptions, product disruptions, logistics interruptions and challenges, global inflation, and many more. Each fortnight, I delve into different sections of the end-to-end supply chain. I chat with fascinating and interesting people, and we try to have some fun along the way. Today, I'm going to dive into digitalization and disruption in the Australian manufacturing industry. My guest is a business owner who is right there in the trenches every day, identifying and addressing and resolving the challenges of being a supplier in the manufacturing industry today. Let's get some first-hand stories from the front line. I've called this episode Dispatches from the Front. My guest is the resilient, the ebullient Sam Medendos. Hello, uh, Sam. You're the CEO of Moxon Industries in Sydney. How are you? I'm great, James. Um, thanks for the intro, and uh, it's a pleasure to be here and share, share our story. So you're the CEO of Moxon Industries. Uh, in a recent episode of Supply Circles, Sarah Pavillard from uh, Adroita, uh, described her company as small and mighty. How would you describe Moxon? How did you get to this point in time? Well, how do I describe Moxon? Um, in a few words, um, we're, we're dynamic, flexible. We have to be productive. We have to be efficient, consistent. Most importantly, we, we're a set of miracle workers that are holding this industry together. <laughs> miracle workers, uh, small and mighty, and miracle workers. Is it that tough? It is. It is. It's uh, it's definitely a tough game, and uh, it's definitely a different game to what was around ten or twenty years ago. So, what is the game? What what is your background? You're in the business is in uh, uh, fine tolerance heavy machinery. Is that uh, is that a fair call? Uh, yeah, fair call. Uh, to, to I suppose to narrow in, we are. Um, manufacturers of safety critical components predominantly in, in the rail industry and when we talk about the rail industry and safety critical we're talking about passengers and passenger safety so every product that we manufacture has to be perfect intolerance in spec uh, trace traceability is a big thing and to hone all that into one business under one roof one system 
with some of the best tradesmen that we've got in the country is uh, quite a challenging business. I think it's a fascinating business. I, I grew up in Sydney and, and uh, like just about every city in Australia, we had the Red Rattlers. They were bloody terrible trains. They rattled <laughs> and they were cold and you couldn't open the windows and the doors were impossible to try and open to get out. And now you're getting these, these wonderful pieces of machinery. They're, they're just spectacular. Have you been involved in that industry for a while? Yeah, I suppose our um, company background or my personal background, I've been in the rail industry since late 1994. Um, and the rail industry is uh, has a high barrier to entry. It's difficult. And then you have to have a niche set of skills to be in that rail industry. And obviously, to be in the game for that long, you have to continually improve and be a, a better and better supplier. Otherwise, someone else will take your spot. Yeah, it's competitive. Um, what about you? How, you? how long have you been the CEO? How did you end up as CEO? Oh, the backstory. Yeah, yeah, why not? Come on, tell us about oh. Sam. <laughs> I don't like really talking too much about myself, but um, I'll try to keep it short and sweet. Um, my father started a tool-making business in 1982. Um, I was about three years of age, and he named the business after his son and his nephew. So the business was called Samcon Engineering, and it was a tool-making business that um, did a lot of amazing things, things that uh, I, I dare say not many shops in Australia could have done at the time, press tools, injection molding tooling, and we would support the large manufacturing businesses. And we grew up, you know, at school, school holidays, weekends, um, playing around in the factory, so it was almost like our destiny that when we finished school, we took on an apprenticeship in the family business. And as you know, they say first generation starts the business, the second will build it, and the third will probably destroy it. Mm. Uh, I was in the second generation position, and our business grew from you know, a very small business up to about 60 employees. And around 12 years ago, we were acquired by a, um, a group that wanted to expand the business nationally um, and handing over the reins as the MD in 2010 is something um, uh, quite difficult to do. Yeah. However, yeah. Um, for, for many reasons outside our control, the uh, group that took on the business uh, ultimately um, took a different direction and their business had collapsed. So in 2013, um, you know, I really wanted to get back into business again. I'd spent a couple of years working in the rail industry for Downer and I knew small business was where I wanted to be. I wanted to be able to the guy that made the decisions, you know, write the check and build a business, create a culture within that. And it's where nine and a half years now into Moxon um, Industries and uh, we would not have it, have it any other way. So you brought the business back from the previous owners, is it? Uh, kind of, in some aspects. We... We bought Moxon Industries, which had started in uh, 2001 as a OEM in the food uh, manufacturing industry. Mm -hmm. Obviously, when the uh, our former business uh, eventually closed up, there were certain elements that we were able to. Like we re-employed a lot of people that had been with us for 30 years wow. and then re-entering re the rail industry with our reputation that we had pre-2010 was, was a relief for our customers knowing that we understand their industry, the product, and we're back to have a second bite at the cherry. You mentioned uh, that you work for Downer, who are the 
one of the, the, the train manufacturers in Australia, and now you're on the other side of the supplier. That's fascinating. I, I didn't know that. How? What's the difference between working on the two sides of the track? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, with utmost respect to, to any large uh, corporate company, uh-oh. Um, <laughs> um, you know, being in small business and dealing with large corporates, you have this perception that that they're, that they're musclier, they're, they're, they're more geared up, they've got uh, more power behind them. And it's not until you join the company that you realise that ultimately just the, the departments within a large business are no different to a small business. I mean, yes, you work for Downer, but it's, it's your manager and that team, that department that you're working for that really drives those outcomes. So working for Downer in small departments, I got to see how political uh, departments can get, whether it's supply chain dealing with engineering or engineering dealing with operations and operations driving sales. And what I did realise working there is that if you don't have the right culture, you don't have a consistent culture throughout your business, you're basically creating silos and it's very hard to get everyone on the same page. So within a couple of years, I realised, you know, we're ready to, to get back into business and having been on that side of the fence, I was exposed to the corporate the governance, which is which was brilliant, a lot of small business aren't big on government governance on uh, risk and um, all these mitigation techniques. So being mm. able to have that corporate insight and adopting that into a small business really makes Moxon a very unique company. It certainly does. So understanding that uh, governance and risk uh, and supply chain risk is a key focus of your buyer. It makes you a good supplier. Spot on. And we're constantly talking with our customers, identifying risks that they may have in their supply chain and why we are their best option to mitigate that risk. Yeah, right. Okay. Yeah. Addressing, uh, addressing their challenges. What a great, what a great lesson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Spot on. Let's talk about you for uh, a bit longer as CEO. Often it's said that as a CEO, you can only really focus on one thing. You've got to have one main focus for your business is, there might be growth, rapid growth. I know you're talking about growing. There might be, you know, nailing your, your quality is the biggest focus right now uh, or managing managing the risk. What, what's your main focus? What do you come to work to do as the main thing on your to-do list? And can you do more than one, I guess, is the other part of the question. Yeah, uh, two parts to that. Our main focus or my main focus is ensuring that we can keep food on the tables of our employees that they can, they can come to work knowing that they've got job security and that they can go home knowing that their mortgage will be able to get paid and that they're not at fear of getting a tap on the shoulder like you would in a large company, dedicate your life and then you know, be made redundant. And yeah. so our main thing really is um, ensuring the well-being and that our employees have that confidence in the business, that they're involved in the Australian manufacturing industry and that they're proud to be in that part. That means you focus a lot on on your cash flow. You've, you've got a real good eye on your cash flow then. Yeah. So so the second part is when you said can you, you can't do one thing and only one thing because to, to ensure sustainability and job security, there's so many factors that need to come into play. Do we have enough work? Do we have the capacity to meet the customer's deadlines? Do we have the capability to actually produce that, that, that those parts. 
Um, do we have a strategy in place? Have we looked at our risks? Um, and all those, all those aspects, they're all incremental. It's not really a case in our business of, you know, what comes first, the chicken or the egg. It's really working on all of those things at incremental level. The biggest thing that we really ensure is right is that our foundation is correct. And when I say our foundation, it's not so much about systems, policies, procedures. It's one level under that, and that's our culture. Because systems and policies, procedures, as you know, they can be changed. But trying to shift culture in a business is real is is really difficult. So instead of having that problem, we just make sure that we focus on our culture, that our team pulls together, and then we'll build our systems and processes above that. Was it Deming? I can't remember. An academic said, I'm sure it was. Deming said, uh, "Culture eats strategy for breakfast." Uh, and that was from a guy who taught and, and, and explained strategy. Uh, he believed that the culture was the fundamental. I take it you agree entirely. One million percent. And um, you don't have to hear it from me. You can come and ask anyone that works for us about the workplace culture. And I'm not saying that we're like Google and all these other, you know, fancy things, but our culture really is customer first and make sure that their needs are met and ensuring that, we all work together. Like we say to our guys um, and girls, when you're at your when you're at your best self, you're more cooperative, you're happier, you're willing to help people, you're, you're um, able to think clearer, you're less stressed. But when you're at your worst self, you're grumpy, uh, angry, you're less willing to help. You get all these, you know, it's not my job type of attitudes. So we try to promote everyone to work at their best self. So when someone does say to you, hey, um, what do I do here or have you, what's your opinion on this, that culture that ties them together ensures that your productivity is not uh, sacrificed in any way by people saying, well, I'm in the sales department, you're in purchasing, that's, that's your job. In a recent episode, I was talking to uh, Nicola and she was saying that, that having that kind of leadership, that sort of culture helps you with your suppliers because they pick up on the vibe. They they don't keep things secret from you. They ring up and say, uh, you know, we've got a problem with on-time delivery for this particular order, uh, but also helps you with your relationship with your, with your buyer. So um, a good culture is critical to uh, effective supply chain management, according to Nicola. Again, I think I'm putting words in your mouth, but it sounds like you're saying the same thing. Have you seen it from outside your, your organisation, not just inside your organisation? Yeah, so with our supply chain, We've got them trained to let us know uh, before it becomes a problem, before the job runs late, to be able to be transparent and keep that communication open. But also the culture's in a point where we do a lot of urgent jobs, a lot of breakdowns come in. And if you generally have to wait in line for to get something heat treated, you'll be waiting two or three weeks. We don't have to wait in line. We'll get it done overnight because of our strength of our relationships over years with our supply chain. With your suppliers, wow. Yeah. yeah. With our customers, it's uh, very similar. Customers can pick up their phone and ring and say, listen, I know this thing's going to take two weeks to turn around. You reckon you can do it in two or three days? And it's mathematical after that. Do you have the resources available? If not, what job do we need to stop to, to get that job done to look after that customer? And the, cir- the circle just continues. Sure. Well, that moves from uh, culture on to uh, uh, digitalization, but let's come back to that. I wanted to challenge uh, something with you, get your thoughts on it, because you are there on the front line. Let's talk about manufacturing in Australia. 
when Ford and Holden announced in twenty three uh, twenty in May twenty thirteen that they were stopping vehicle manufacturing in Australia, we heard constantly that uh, the manufacturing industry was dead. Uh, and many people say that's not true, that it's, it's actually quite strong. According to Dr. Jeff Wilson, the AI Group Head of Research and Economics, manufacturing, especially advanced manufacturing, is actually booming in Australia. It contributes $117 billion of value added to the economy. That was in 22, making it the sixth largest sector in the Australian economy, uh, behind mining, health and social care, professional services and financial services and construction. <laughs> Badly read sentence. Um, I was thinking, though, it's not easy, though, is it, is it Sam? You'd, you'd be right down the front line. Manufacturing has struggled with supply chain disruptions and labour shortages during the pandemic. Um, and, as, and as advancements come into advanced manufacturing and critical technology, as all of that's gathering pace, it's got to be tough to be a smaller business in a really big industry. What's the what's the story? How do you see it from your perspective? Is it booming? Is it challenging? Give me give me the sort of raw, the raw from the front top of view. All right. Um, well, I suppose I better start saying the disclaimer with all um, due respects to Dr. Jeff Wilson's um, numbers that he plucked out: uh, one hundred and seventeen billion of value to the economy in twenty twenty two. Look, I don't doubt it. There probably is that much money in in the industry. And on paper at a higher level, those, those contracts are probably there. I, I understand the automotive industry decided to uh, close up shop 10 years ago and people can still have confidence that, you know, manufacturing is still strong. But on the coalface, I probably beg to differ to some degree. And the reason I can say that is when, when you look at a large contract, um, whether it's infrastructure projects, you know, new rolling stock, new assets for the defense force you break down that product and you say okay of that product of that x amount of billion or million how much of it is reflective into the manufacturing space so there's the oems that are specified on the build to supply product original equipment manufacturers yeah equipment manufacturers i'll use a train as an example could be air conditioning door systems brakes passenger seats, drivetrain. You take out all those subsystems mm-hmm. from the OEM, mm-hmm. you're left with about two or three components, no. electrical, assembly, and the manufacturing of the metal components, whether they're cast, fabricated, and machined. In saying that, the manufacturing industry is strong and we are busy, and I think that can come down to a, f- a few things. As we know, over the last 10 or 20 years, We've had the baby boomers that have waved the white flag, sailed away into the sunset, um, and then we've got that theory, the survival of the fittest. And there's been a lot of engineering companies where their owners are in their 50s and 60s and they said, do you know what, we're just not interested in continually investing to stay competitive when our customers are offshoring parts that we used to make. We're still dealing with manufacturers now where there's local content local work but they have the option to procure from overseas Mm -hmm. so at the coalface there's a lot of engineering companies they're all busy and they're busy because there's just not many of us left that have made that investment to stay competitive 
One of the uh, one of the good things in my life is that I've been able to help businesses transition from the baby boomers into the next generation, and say it's time to change. You've got to change. Again, brings us to digitalization, a whole bunch of issues, including culture. Uh, but Sam, the the biggest issue in in the Australian economy, particularly in manufacturing, is the availability of staff. So why, if it's not as busy as you're painting, why is there not why is there a lack of staff? Yeah. Um... Well, let's go back 10 or 20 years ago. How many, how many kids wanted to leave school and do an apprenticeship as a fitter machinist or a boiler mm-hmm. maker right. in, in, a, in an industry that w- was dying 10 or 20 years ago? How many kids want to say, I want to be the best fabricator in a, in a dying industry? Well, let's, 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 let's throw another example, tool making. No one, no, no, one even wants, no one even knows what a tool maker is anymore or what they mm-hmm. do, but the importance mm-hmm. of that, that art, that trade, it's, it's all but gone mm. because of that big gap in offshoring our manufacturing. So we've ended up with a skill shortage, mm-hmm. a big gap. They've tried to plug that gap through um, um, skilled, uh, skilled labour from overseas. And as you know, there's also a whole range of red tape to bring in um, tradies from overseas. So the only way to combat that is to bring back domestic manufacturing and encourage uh, the, the younger guys to take up that apprenticeship in an industry that's booming where they can see where their career could, could end up. Yeah, right. Yeah. It's not just in trades, though. Uh, you know, people sort of say, why have we got so many overseas doctors? And that was because a long time ago, people stopped going into, into medicine. We weren't training doctors. We weren't training tradies. We didn't train the, the skills that we need in Australia. And I think that's being recognised. But the the uh, the jobs of the future are changing, aren't they? A trade now is different from a trade twenty years ago, um, and a, a future. I guess that won't be motor mechanics. A future car mechanic will be totally different from from in the past. How do we keep changing to keep training the people that we need? Uh, are you? Uh, how do you see the, the the training of trades? Okay, for the future is what yeah. I'm talking about. Like in- for the future, so the the current system is that is for a trade is to go through TAFE, as you know, to, to do an apprenticeship or a traineeship that we've got in. It was about four, four years, I think, isn't it? Yeah, three, or four? Yeah, yeah three, three years at TAFE and one year full-time at work. I think training could probably looked at be looked at differently, whether it's uh, private training campuses or whether it's some niche training in specific areas within that industry. I know that some some... Uh, industries have started getting their apprentices. I'll use the rail industry as an example and explaining to them what that rail industry is all about. And I'm, I'm sure the defence does the same. So you could be studying fitting, fitting machining, mm. but they need to be trained about the actual industry as well and what the importance that industry plays across the country. Like I said, most apprentices that become tradesmen don't stay tradesmen. They progress, their career just keeps moving. They end up in quality, project management, sales, CEOs. Yeah, and of course, it's not just men. It's 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 both both genders. Uh, it's correct. A, a generic a generic term. Um, you raise an interesting point. I did my time in uh, in education with uh, with university and in corporate training, and and one of the things that came out when we were looking at trades is that some crazy number, like eighty five percent or something, of trades. Tradespeople go into business ownership at some stage. 
uh, you know, so if you trade, train as a plumber, at some stage you almost certainly start your plumbing business. And yet there's no training at all in how to be a manager, a leader, or a, or a business owner. You were lucky you had the, the family influence. But do you see that other skill of being a trader, the bit about being a business person, as important too? Or, or is that for those that want to? <laughs> it's probably more important than the trade itself. Okay, yeah, yeah. The amount of small businesses that fail in the first five years, it's it, it's unfair. It's unfair to to the to the plumber that bought, went out and bought a van and said, you know, I want to work for myself and not having that business training, putting his family at risk with, with mortgages on equipment. Mm, yeah. And in the end they, they say it's it's not for me or it didn't work out or you know, I did a I did a job and didn't get paid. You know, business skills are not really taught. They're not taught they're certainly not taught in high school. Mm. And I understand that you can go to university and uh, l- learn these skills, but we've got to bring it back to something a little bit more simpler. Yeah, yeah. Most successful people I know in business that don't have um, academic qualifications, they found that the more books they read or the more they learned, the more they understood the risks <laughs> around getting into business. And when you understand the risks, you say, why would I get into business? Why would I do that? Yeah. <laughs> So getting into business, not knowing the risk is dangerous, but it's definitely being thrown in the deep end and you only have one option then. But if you're trying to build a, a good culture in a small business and you have uh, tradespeople who have got an understanding of business, it will help you build your culture because the understanding that the work doesn't automatically happen, that that costs are important, the way the quality is important, the, the business-trained tradesperson as to your what you're trying to achieve I would, I would i would argue most of our traders at some stage have said to us i want to go out on my own they haven't been able to succeed and they've come back and they know they know what it's like on the other side and they're happy to forego all that responsibility and sleepless nights worrying where the next job's going to come from but one thing they did learn is that without a customer you've got no business yeah and that, that makes them, you know, a, a very valuable tradie to us. Well, I said I wanted to call this episode Stories from the Frontline, and this is real frontline, isn't it? The fact that many people understand that it is difficult. Uh, thankfully, there are people like you who can handle the sleepless nights and will we'll take, <laughs> on the, the take on the challenge. When we come back um, from the break, let's talk about digitalization. Uh, this is a great chat, Sam. Thanks. Sounds great. If you have supply chain or business improvement challenges, contact AI Group's Business Improvement and Growth Hub. The Big Hub is a library of practical and relevant resources designed to assist member businesses to grow and improve. The Big Hub also includes an extensive network of experienced, pre-qualified business improvement consultants. For more details, contact big at aigroup.com.au. That's big at aigroup.com.au. Sam, uh, I saw recently on a LinkedIn post that you you made a short video of, I think, five reasons maybe uh, as to why you should digitalize your business. And it was about keeping your business ahead of, of the pack. Uh, as you heard in the intro, this podcast is about saying the way to digitalize your business is to keep track with your peers and to better improve your supply chain performance. 
picking up that video that you had on LinkedIn, why are you passionate about about digitalization and what are the lessons we should learn about about digitalizing our business? Yeah, thanks, James. I, I want to answer that question in, in two parts. One is the business owner and the other as how, how the customer sees it. As the business owner, a small business that's growing, you have a lot of knowledge in your head. It could be how to do a job, how you quoted that, what methods you were going to use, what how you're going to design your tooling, and being able not to be not to be able to capture that information digitally. You win the order. You have to relay that message to somebody on the shop floor. How to make it? Where's the material? Where's the where's the material certificate? Ultimately, you'll find yourself as a business owner stressed, overworked, and your phone will be ringing off off the hook all day. You won't be able to go on a holiday. And if anything, you're causing damage to the business by not digitalizing. Well, you can't sell the business if it's in your head. All that exactly in your right. head. And secondly, it's the bus problem. If you get hit by a bus, exactly <laughs> uh, the right. business comes to an end. Yeah. yeah. And those people you're supposed to be looking after aren't looked after because the bus wiped out their, their livelihood, being sort of graphic, but uh, that's the story. Yeah, so you need to digitalize for that reason to For that reason. We look at what we spoke about earlier, ensuring that um, employees have comfort over their job security. So getting the stuff out of out of the head and into a digital system also de-risks them, also de-risks our profile to our customer. Oh, yeah. We're able, with our digitalization um, system that we've put in place, we're able to offer our customer information, whether it's you know, traceability, uh, repeatability, we're very accurate with our job costings. We understand where our efficiencies are at and we're offering our customers now something different to what other engineering companies um, gen- uh, previously would offer and that's transparency. Transparency in terms of this is the quote and this is how we got to that price using these this hourly rate this many hours for the job, this margin on the material. Having that system in place um, has a, is basically a no-brainer. If you don't have it, yeah, you can't grow. And if you can't grow, you're shrinking. And if you're shrinking, you won't have a business in the next five years. What sort of areas have you put digitalized processes into? Is it just machinery or is it just your processes? Or what specifically have you looked at to improve your processes? Yeah, fortunately, I'm at that. Yeah, still at that young age where, I'm, where we're quite adaptable to, to technology. We've put it in all those aspects. So whether it's in the systems and the process into our machine, I can give you a quick example. Our customer could uh, draw a 3D model and just send us that model. We don't need 2D drawings. We don't need shop drawings. That model then can be fed straight into our CNC machine. Oh, wow. And programs written yeah, and machined yeah. up. So we're offering our customers that efficiency as well where they don't have to sit there dimensioning and tolerancing uh, their model. Just give us the model and we'll, we can look after it from there. So, yeah. That's a, that's, that's a great example of it, isn't it? Um, where you're solving a, a problem and creating efficiencies for your buyer at the same time creating more capacity for yourself because you've cut out inefficient processes. Uh, but that leads me on to the, uh, the next question I want to ask you is about growth. Um, you've been working a lot, from what I understand, on trying to get uh, super efficient and, and building 
um, taking out the taking out the inefficiencies, that must give you extra capacity. How, are you, how do you go about addressing the growth, making sure you've got enough working to fill that extra capacity? Yeah, good question. I suppose if I tap into that digitalisation um, component, how many small to medium engineering companies can click a button and see the availability on each of their work centres for the rest of the year? Yeah, right. So we, we, we've been able to... Um, see into that crystal ball, we can see our capacity, our, our available capacity that is. And regarding the growth part, you know, um, what are they, what's that saying? Is it um, turnover for vanity, profit for sanity? Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, don't, just, don't just grow for no reason. And I've seen a lot of businesses grow in turnover, double, triple, quadruple their turnover, and their margins get smaller and smaller to the point where they said, you know what, we were better off five years ago when we were a smaller, leaner, meaner business. Yeah, yeah, sure. And that's something that we've been able to focus on through digitalization, getting our efficiencies right to increase our throughput, which ultimately improves our bottom line. Yeah, right. And we use a theory um, uh, most manufacturers should be aware of, and if they're not, I highly recommend that they, they either read the book or... Um, get their hands on it somehow. It's called the goal, and it's based on the theory of constraints. Right. Okay. And um, that's a very worthwhile read for anyone in the manufacturing space about how to improve your throughput without having the fastest CNC machine or without having to work two shifts. What's it called? The goal. The goal yeah. is in G O A L. And uh, it's a fantastic um, read. Well, we, when when I was coming up through management, we used to talk about they changed the title a little bit these days, but we used to call it, talk about SNOP, sales and operational planning. So what basically that was saying, try to figure out what's available capacity you've got was normally done on a spreadsheet, uh, and then get your salespeople to sell in that capacity. But if you've got digital uh, footprint that says I've got this capacity coming up in this area at this time and you can map that. The salespeople have a much better opportunity to be able to fill uh, the pipeline from an intelligent point of view. And also your clients can too. Your clients can look at that and say, well, how about we drop a job into that area there? Does it work that way? Yes, it works exactly that way. It was only a couple of weeks ago where we had a look at our uh, availability on our work centres Fabrication department was chock a block, let's say, for the next three to four weeks. Uh-huh. We had some, we got capacity in laser cutting and in CNC turning. So the sales team focuses their shift on, okay, which customers can we go talk to to pick up some work to say we've got the capacity to start the job tomorrow and you can have it the day after that. And without that visibility, you would, you, you're basically guessing and being able to offer customers short turnaround times and sticking to them is something that most small businesses can't do and if and if they do it they don't do it well this has been a great chat thank you sam um would you recommend people go into small business uh, you said that you've got a lot of staff that have tried and said nah uh, but you've been doing it for over 10 years now did you say yeah so what, what do you think people should do i suppose it comes down to to understanding your why uh-huh. and once you know your why and people have often asked me that question and there's that book with um, Simon Sinek, you know, Start With Why and yep. why, organi- why Organizations Do What They Do. Yep. But if you get if people are thinking to get into business because they think, you know, you get the nice car and the holiday and the lifestyle, 
I'd say to them they should think again because it's it's not enough of a why to, to get up every day and be at that cold face. There's a short-term one, yeah, in a couple of years maybe. And secondly, when they are ready to say, you know what, this, I do have a passion for business or I do have a passion for employing people or seeing people's careers advance, they really got to be prepared to make sacrifices. And I know a lot of people that aren't prepared to make the sacrifice and a lot of business people that have made the sacrifices to get to where they got to. They've been successful in business, but they've failed miserably in other aspects of their life. Being in business and being successful in business, is, it, it's, it's a very big, uh, difficult juggling act. Some people can do it well. Some people can't. I would, I would say if anyone is, is contemplating getting into business, they need to reach out to me, set up a more than happy to have a cup of coffee and give anyone the advice that they need because I've learned the hard way through the ups and downs. And any advice that I could give to anyone to ensure that they're at least aware of what's required, it, um, it's priceless. You, you, you won't learn that stuff at, at, at any place. Yeah, there's a, a fabulous book that I read years ago uh, called Peak Performance, and it looks at uh, all the very successful sporting teams around the world that have been able to be successful uh, post-highly skilled players. Uh, so, you know, the team was successful when Michael Jordan was playing, but they stayed successful. The other things, the Bulls, they, they stayed successful after Michael Jordan left. Um, Australian netball has been at the top of the league uh, for generations. For Williams, Formula One, good for a long time. And they looked at all sorts of things and they said you have to align your front office and your back office. You've got to align your production with, with your why, all sorts of things. But in the end, it came down to the passion of the industry. It comes back to, the, uh, the passion for the business, that culture that you're talking about. And a lot of that comes from leadership. I think we've seen your leadership on display today, Sam. Thank you. Thank you very much. If I, if I summarise what you said uh, about going into business, it was about passion, though. It was about you've got to... It's all passion. You've got to, you've got to really want to do this, not just buy a car. That's right. That's exactly right. Be prepared. What's next for you? Um, well, we, we've got... Um, uh, We've got a variety of things on, on the go at the same time. We are um, in the process of setting up uh, another engineering company uh, in Queensland to try to pick up some of the local content work mm-hmm. that's state-driven. Is that rail also, or you can't say? Or, rail, yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, rail, yeah. There's a $7 billion rail contract that's been announced yeah. and and uh, I love the fact that they only want to deal with companies in that state. So um, we're, we're looking to expand into Queensland and, and into Victoria. And more so the exciting part is once that settles down, we really want to have a, a good look at some other uh, compatible industries and show, show these industries what a highly skilled rail supplier can, can offer them. I think they're going to be quite impressed and I think the competition should be worried. <laughs> Sounds fantastic. Sounds good. Well, I wish you all the best. If anyone wants to know more about Sam, uh, hook up via LinkedIn, uh, which is uh, a great place. Sam's uh, page has lots of uh, short videos and uh, a lot of interesting stuff. It's well worth following. All the best, Sam. Thank you for being on Supply Circles. Thanks again, James, and all the best. Thanks very much. And that's it for Supply Circles for this fortnight. We'll be back in a fortnight with some more stories 
of supply circles and um, the supplier improvement process. Bye for now. I'm James Scotland. See ya.